Be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we're going to look at uh, just the first two verses of the chapter as we come uh, this morning to the, to the final part of our, our series on worship. We've been looking at the topic of worship uh, in the month of January. We looked at it relative to just communion on that first Sunday, worship as commendation on that second Sunday, the praise and adoration we offer unto Him. And then last Sunday, worship as corporate gathering, maybe what you sort of anticipated uh, the series would be about. We looked at last Sunday, just why do we worship the way we do here at, at Westminster? Why do we include the different elements that we do? And the last point of the sermon last Sunday, if you remember, was, was worship as stimulation. It's to stimulate us to do something, okay? Your presence here this morning, yes, there is a, benef- a vertical benefit to your relationship with the Lord, but you're also here for the sake of the people worshiping around you. There's a benefit to others. There's a benefit to you that you receive from everyone else that's here. It's to stimulate us to, to love and good deeds, uh, the Hebrews passage told us. So there's, there's something it's to make us do. Well, we're sort of taking point three this morning and looking at it in greater detail. Okay, it's worship as a living sacrifice. It's sort of I've come to worship Him, and I've done that, and and I've received encouragement to the saints, and now we're all going to merge from the back doors of the sanctuary this morning. Now what do I do? Does my life of worship end? Absolutely not. It continues on. So there is something special or important about what we're doing now, but there's also something worship is to, we're to be caught up in our whole life. And Paul uses this wonderful image of living sacrifice, living death literally is what that means, and well, how can that be? Well, we'll look at that uh, as we go on this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, would you teach us from it now that we would find your word and the very will of our lives to be good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, would you help us understand more now what it means to be a living sacrifice. And this sacrifice is our reasonable service of worship to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I heard a pastor tell the story one time of what happened on January the 23rd of 1960 aboard the United States Navy vessel called Trieste. Two men, Jacques Picard and U.S. Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh, boarded this submersible submarine and they went to the lowest point on earth, at least that we're aware of. You may know the term the Mariana Trench out in the Pacific Ocean. Well, there's a particular part of that trench called Challenger Deep, which is the lowest and deepest point in the ocean that we are aware of. And they descended almost seven full miles under the ocean, completely dark, 
When they had gotten to the bottom, a crack began to form in the window there, the, you know, the dash, as you see. You know, why they didn't turn around immediately, I don't understand. I mean, if this was me, I'm out of there when the crack formed. But they didn't, and we're grateful that they didn't, because they began to shine light on parts of the world previously unknown, life form that we had never seen before. They took, collected some soil and some other things, collected some data, and then they emerged once again unharmed. For 20 minutes, human beings plumbed the ocean's deepest depths. Its darkness was, light was sh- shown in there as never before. We studied it, we collected data, we got to understand things before not understood. The hidden depth of the world had not remained hidden. Paul, in a similar fashion, has taken 11 chapters, which I know we have not studied, <laughs> but he's taken 11 chapters to take us to the very depths of who God is and what he has done for us. Romans often regarded as the great theological treatise of the, of the Bible, and it is. He expounds for us in those 11 chapters. This is God. This is what he has done. This is who you are as a sinful person in light of the greatness of God. He's taken us to the depths. Now, when Paul emerges from all this, he's not looking for any congratulations. He's not looking to boast in anything that he has done. He's not looking for any acclaim whatsoever. What does Paul do at the very end of Romans chapter 11? He just burst into praise. (laughs) Oh, the depths, he says. Oh, the depths and the wonders, the unfathomable depths of God. As I begin to contemplate these things, it's as if Paul is saying, I'm stunned. My reaction is not to boast in myself. My reaction is not to look for congratulations. My reaction is to praise him. And that's indeed what he does. In fact, Paul models for us, I think, the order that we need to have in our minds. There is the the theology, which is very important. But theology for Paul always leads him to do what next? Doxology. Praise him for who he is. And then, once that's done, it's the practice. Or, because we love alliteration around here, we have doctrine, doxology, and duty. (laughs) And it's in that order, isn't it? I know who he is and what he's done. It leads me to praise him for all of those things. And now, in light of that, what am I to do? How am I to live? And that's where Paul goes at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12. He's given us the theology. He's burst forth into praise at the very end of chapter 11. And now, what do we do in light of all those things? Which, of course, is very important. And he, and he calls it what? He calls it our living sacrifice. He calls it our spiritual worship, or literally the words used, our reasonable service. Giving our whole self to Him is the most reasonable and logical thing we could do. Do we do that? Of course, we cannot understand God in His fullness. We can try to plumb the depths, if you will, of all who He is. We can't totally understand it. And yet what we do know is it is enough for us to bring Him praise. And so Paul initially wants us to join him on his knees before the unimaginable and unfully knowable and unsearchable and inscrutable wisdom and beauty of who God is. And once we've done that, now what? Well, two points for us this morning. The first is sacrifice, and the second is service. These are interchangeable things, and yet I think there still is a small distinction between the two. So first, let's look at sacrifice. It's more sort of broad, and then we narrow as we get to the second point. 
We are told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Well, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) Well, first, we've got to understand the motivation for that. And Paul tells us in verse 1, he says, in view of God's mercy, in view of what He's done for you and how He's been merciful to you, here's the obvious application. So it's keeping that in mind. In fact, I'm going to remind, this, uh, remind you of this several times along the way. It's because of the mercy of God that we can do these things, and we must do these things. It's our bodies and our minds. It's odd that, bo- that, that uh, Paul uses bodies here. Normally, he, he speaks of our heart being transformed and our mind being renewed, which he will do later in this text. What he's mean to communicate, what he's means to communicate here by body is the whole of who you are. Okay, it's your heart, it's your desires, it's your words, uh, it's your thinking, and it is your doing with your body. Okay, it's, it's the total of who someone is. What is this living sacrifice? Well, the Old Testament believer, this would have been extra odd to them, I think, had they heard this particular language, and yet they would have made the, the, the connection here. The sacrifice in the Old Testament included the whole of the, whatever animal it was who was being sacrificed. It was totally consumed. For our sake, our sacrifice unto Him is equally total. It's all of you. It's not that, I, God, here's, here's some, and I'm going to keep the rest over here. It's a, it's a total and full sacrifice. You are giving and submitting over unto Him your thinking, your thoughts, the desires of your heart, the works of your hands, the words of your mouth. It's all of you. It can't be some. It's your public life. It's your private life. It's your relationships. It's work. It's everything in between. It's a full and complete living sacrifice unto God. And as he says, this is the most reasonable thing you can do. Why? In view of God's mercy upon you. No worship is pleasing to God, which is merely inward. That is, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. And no worship is right that's only outward. Has it also captured your heart? And the basis of that commitment, again, is the mercies of God. And so let's consider it, the doctrine, the doxology, and now the duty. Have we comprehended it in such a way that there's an obligation in light of what God has done to praise Him and to now live for Him? And it's a total commitment. It's holy It's living, it's holy, and it's acceptable. No, the believer is not killed in the Old Testament like the sacrifices were. We remain alive, and yet it's no less complete as it was then. And finally, it's acceptable, not because we are perfect in and of ourselves, but it meets the specifications that God has laid out, that it's all of who you are. That's an important point. Paul mentions of himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he is being poured out like a drink offering, he says. What he's saying, the drink offering was the final part of the, of the sacrifice. It was the very end. It's what you did last. And Paul is sort of giving this illustration of his own life as the last part of my sacrifice, me as a living sacrifice, I'm being poured out, the very end of it. He knows that the end is near. In fact, it probably just a matter of months from the time he wrote that to the time he would actually die. He understands this. The final part of it is being poured out. Paul is writing, I've given all of who I am. 
Just as sin has touched all of who we are, we now give all of who we are back. If you've been in the Reformed world for very long, you know we believe in a particular doctrine called total depravity. Total depravity means this, that sin has touched all of who you are. It's not just that you do bad things, though that's true. You think bad things. You desire bad things. You say bad things. And so now, conversely, how we are cleansed by the Holy Spirit ought to touch all of those things as well. The sacrifice ought to be all of those things. You're totally depraved. Now you're totally cleansed by the Holy Spirit. All of it is caught up there. Christ, in the ultimate sense, gave all of himself unto us. Now, we can't give that same sacrifice, nor does that sacrifice that we give achieve redemption as Christ did, and yet we still do the same thing. We give all of it. This concept, I think, is easy to understand in our brain, yet it's really difficult to do. You don't want to give all of who you are. You can keep in mind God's mercies. I know that, but I still have sin that so easily entangles my mind and heart. Sinclair Ferguson says, the measure of any true love is the measure of its sacrifice. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice. God shows His love to us through sacrifice. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Sacrifice. Sacrifice was something always in front of the Old Testament believer. They got to see it with their eyes, the the consuming fire of an animal. We don't have that image in front of us all the time, and yet we are to be consumed now with the duty and the following of God. Sacrifice is a part of our life, isn't it? Moms and dads, we sacrifice ourselves for our children. We work hard to provide for them. We give of our time and energies. We sacrifice for the people we care about. I heard a pastor tell a story one time of a boy that came to him one day wanting to ask his daughter to marry him, and so he was looking for my friend's approval. He said yes, and in the course of them talking, he said, well, I'm just curious, how are you going to get the money to buy a ring? (laughs) And so this young boy said, well, I have a beautiful, wonderful 1964 Ford Mustang and I just sold it. So I'd get the money to buy this engagement ring for this girl that I love. I love the faces of everybody in the room right now. All the guys are like, oh my goodness, that's a tough one. And all the women are swooning, isn't that, wow, that's so wonderful that he did that, right? It's a sacrifice. It doesn't matter to the boy. He wanted to ask the girl to marry. The sacrifice was worth it, right? The sacrifice, the the measure of any true love is the measure of its sacrifice. We sacrifice for each other, and it completely is the most reasonable thing. To others, it may seem ridiculous. It's reasonable to us because we know what it is for. A living sacrifice. As we've already said in our affirmation of faith, we are not our own. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ, purchased for the sake of salvation, and now in this life, service unto Him. When we are a living sacrifice, we must really die to ourselves. Our own desires and seeing our, our life and ourself become as great as it possibly can, we do this for His sake. I will give my all, O Lord, for you. Wherever that may take me, whatever that means I am to do, 
Help me understand more and more what it means to sacrifice me for you, O Lord. Secondly is service. Spiritual worship is what is used in the ESV, if you have it. Reasonable service is also another accurate translation there. I, I don't think there's any, uh, any conflict in those terms. Our life is worship to God, not just formal corporate worship, but our, our very lives. John Stott says this, Our body ought to be offered a sacrifice to God, by which he implies that we are not our own, but have entirely passed over so as to become the property of God, which cannot be, except we renounce ourselves and thus deny ourselves. Then, secondly, by adding two adjectives, he shows what sort of sacrifice this ought to be. By calling it living, he intimates that we're sacrificed to the Lord for this end, that our former life being destroyed in us may be raised to a new life. Offering ourselves to God in this way is the most reasonable thing we could do. Offering our whole selves in the service and worship of God is wholly logical, and we should expect and desire to do no different. It's a total commitment, and it's the most logical thing we could do. For Paul, this true worship and offering ourselves is consistent with being a follower of God. Nothing else makes sense. Halfway commitment is irrational, he's implying here. Everything is yours, Lord, except for a couple things over here that I'd like to keep for myself. Except for my job, except for my money, except for this relationship that I know that you'd, it's not good for me, but I want to do it anyway. No, it's a total commitment. To do anything other is illogical, Paul's saying. Is this commitment demanding? It is demanding, yes. It's a call not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. It begins in the mind, and it moves from there to the heart and to the will and to the actions and more. About seven or eight years ago, Under Armour, you're probably familiar with that company, they put a lot of athletic wear. Their sort of prized uh, uh, spokesperson is Stephen Curry, who's an NBA basketball player. And like I said, about six or seven years ago, they put out a commercial, and the commercial begins with Stephen Curry has two basketballs in his hand, and he takes him and he starts to dribble him at the same time. And there's this sort of baseline cadence throughout the whole commercial, day in, day out, day in, day out, just over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. He says, day in, day out. And it, it, then there's two Stephen Currys, and they're saying, and then there's a thousand of them on the screen, and they're dribbling the ball, saying this over and over and over and over and over again. And then at the very end of the commercial, he He's standing there, sort of sweat pouring down his face as he's been working out day in and day out. The implication here is this. Yes, I have a ton of God-given ability as an NBA basketball player, but let me tell you why I've won two MVPs. Let me tell you why I've won four championships. It really has nothing to do with the natural ability that I have. It has everything to do with what I do day in and day out. It's the hard work that I put in. I think there's a great correlation for us in the Christian life. This growing closer, this renewing of our mind, this living sacrifice, this reasonable service, it's day in and day out. It's not I come to Christ and I initially make this sacrifice, now I'm good. Or I come to Him and on Sundays I'll give this kind of sacrifice. It's, it's day in and day out, all the time, every day, for His sake. Is this difficult? Yes, it is. 
Is this earning his favor and staying on the right side? No. This is your reasonable service for the person who has shown you tremendous mercy, as Paul has says that he has. This is not what we do to earn his favor. We already have his favor and his mercy. But in view of that mercy, keeping that in the back of my mind, I give myself to him day in and day out and seek ways to submit my whole self to him. I say no to the works of unrighteousness and yes to the works of righteousness. What could be more reasonable than this service? I don't conform myself to the things of this world, although we feel such a pull to do that. I want to do the things the Lord wills and to conform my mind to His Word and not my own desires. Westminster, is there any discernible difference? If we can have a moment of self-evaluation here. Is there any discernible difference between the beliefs and actions and hopes and dreams of the world and you? Could anyone, if they observed your behavior outside of Sunday and outside of your Bible study, would they be able to know that you are a Christian? Are you any different from the world at all? I know we often want to win the world's approval like everyone else does. We want to fit in and not stand out. And yet that's not what we've been called to do. Our reasonable service is to live for Him. Our reasonable service is to desire what He wants. Do you even know what He wants? The transformation begins through mind renewal. And it moves on and on and on until the whole body has been caught up in this. And the effect is undeniable. The basis of this is the mercy of God. The character of it is the sacrifice and the service. The demands are to not be conformed, but be transformed. And the effect of all that, I will begin to know the will of God. Maybe not in its detail, but certainly in its principles. That's where Paul ends us in verse 2. We all want to know the will of God for our life. Well, Paul has actually already told them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your being a living sacrifice for Him. Growing in spiritual maturity, I come to the place where I know what God wants for me in a principled sense. Yes, Westminster, these verses are a tremendous gut check. Either I own myself and all that I have is mine to do with what I please, or I don't own myself and God owns me. And therefore, all I have is Christ. And dying to myself and to sin in this world are the most reasonable thing I can do. That the whole of my life is to be worshipful unto Him, not just what I do here on Sunday mornings. Prior to your conversion, you could do whatever you wanted with whatever you had. That's right. And now, how, O Lord, can I give this for you? My money, my time, the gifts and abilities you've given me, how can I do that for your sake and for the sake of others? How can I use what I am and who I am and what I have for the growing of the kingdom? How can I sacrifice myself? I've mentioned this many times before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. What was it that was so impactful about the early church, that thousands of people were coming to Christ. I don't deny that there was not something supernatural happening. There was absolutely something supernatural happening. That's the only way that people come to faith in Christ. But what does the writer of Acts, Luke, highlight? The sacrifice that people were making for the sake of others. 
They're giving what they have, selling it, and giving to the people that had need. It was the sacrifice. That what was so overwhelming and so inviting to the people as they came to faith in Christ. Do you sacrifice? Do we give sacrificially of our money, of our time, of our energy? When we do that, God honors it. So how are we going to give ourselves for the sake of others? And I'm not just talking about, as I did last Sunday, encouraging you to always come to church and that you're needed here. I'm assuming that for a moment. I'm not just talking about, are you going to be a part of our Wednesday night program? I hope you will. I'm not just asking you, are you going to be involved in a Bible study at our church? I hope you will. But does your love and worship of God reach into all the nooks and crannies, if you will, of your life? Does it reach into the conversations in your home? Does it reach into the conversations with your neighbor? Does it affect all of who you are and all of what you do? Because I think that's what Paul is suggesting here. John Calvin in the Institutes of Christian Religion says this, We are not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore, let us live for Him and die for Him. We belong to God. Let us with wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our lives accordingly strive toward Him as our only lawful goal. Now, lest you think Calvin really didn't understand what he was talking about here, if you just think, well, that was nice. Did you really go through something, Calvin, that would have made you believe this way? Well, indeed he did. John Calvin arrived in Geneva in 1536. It was a very, very difficult two and a half years, which culminated in him getting kicked out of Geneva, mainly because he brought a lot of changes that the people didn't like. And so he went north to Strasbourg for three years. It was some of his most fruitful ministry that he would ever have. To a a French-speaking congregation, they loved him. The Reformation was greatly impacted while he was there. And then he gets a letter in the mail one day. It's from the folks of Geneva pleading with him to come back. We were wrong. We need you. (laughs) Will you come back and pastor this church once again? His immediate response was, absolutely never. I will not do that. I don't want to. And they pleaded with him. He said, in fact, to his friend Theodore Beza, who would take over for him after he died, I would rather die than go back to Geneva. And yet, as he would say in his letter, I am not my own, but I belong to the Lord. And this is clearly what he has willed for my life. They're beautiful and powerful words, they're true words. They're words that, Lord willing, they would sink deeply within us. We are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Is this difficult, Westminster? Yes, it is. It's difficult because we identify with what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. All the good stuff that I know that I'm supposed to do, I find in myself a desire not to do those things. And I find myself wanting to do the very things I know that I'm not supposed to do. You know, what wretched man that I am? Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? We can become frustrated. 
This is an exhortation to be a living sacrifice and to see that sacrifice as reasonable, and sometimes we see it that way, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we rebel against it just as Paul suggests. And so what do we do in those times? We return to the gospel once again. I am not my own. It is both a comfort, I hope you see, and an exhortation. You're comforted in that I don't do this right, but I'm not my own. Christ has given me himself, and he's given me his righteousness. And that then also propels me out into duty. My doctrine tells me I am owned by Jesus Christ. I've been united to him by faith. That leads me to praise him for all of who he is. And then it sends me out once again in duty. It's an exhortation, and it's a comfort. So why don't we let these verses and even this whole series that we've been talking about set the tone for us in 2024. Let this for us be the year of worship, not the year when we care too much about an election. Let's be concerned about the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ this year, that we would try to be a living sacrifice, that we would try to live for the sake of Christ and for others, and that we would latch on to the final verse of chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. If this is true, if everything is created by him and for him and through him and unto him, as Paul says, and it is, then whatever he asks of me is completely reasonable. There's nothing he can't ask of me. There's nothing he can't require. There's nothing that I should withhold. Everything belongs to him, including myself, my life and my decisions, indeed all that I have. But don't forget the mercies of God. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget the grace that he has given you. That makes this duty the most wonderful thing you could offer to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this exhortation to us today. Lord, that we would see our lives and selves as living sacrifices. We confess that it's hard. We confess that our sinfulness doesn't desire this. Would you give us a heart that desires it more and more because of you? And that we would give our reasonable service to you, O Lord. We thank you for your loving kindness through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And remain standing as we sing the doxology. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.